0: Well, I hope you enjoyed the snowy drive-in today. Thank you so much for joining us. Those of you who are streaming at home, thank you so much. My name is Brian. I'm part of the team here at Lakeside. I blame the snow on Derek. Last week he was talking about the winter weather we were having. It was 37 degrees and drizzling outside. There wasn't a snowflake to be found. And uh, so now we have some nice snow. Hey, I want to thank uh, Lee and Sean and Donna and Greg and Scott those five individuals came together this week and decorated the church for Christmas. So if you uh, if you like the decorations that we have, make sure you tell them thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. If you don't like the decorations, just keep your mouth closed. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. You know, Derek, our worship arts pastor, he's a man of many talents, man of many talents. Uh, a few weeks ago, I wasn't able to be here. And he gave the message, and during the message, he told you all of how he saved my life when a snake entered into Lakeside, a a vicious creature entered into our church and was trying to attack us. And I just wanted to provide some photo evidence of what the man of many talents saved us from. Uh, You will see it's an earthworm. Um, And... His saying, I shrieked, I went to get a shovel because I was going to behead the thing, uh, because the only good snake is a dead snake. So make no mistake about that. Either way, the snake was going to die. Uh, but it was more a shriek of excitement that, yeah, I could take that one. And somebody said, well, why would you kill a snake that small? And I said, they're still vicious. Like those things, you never know You never know what those things could do. So I just wanted to set the record straight. And not only is Derek a great musician and a snake killer, Uh, But, you know, this week, as he saw all the other decorations go up, he decided he wanted to decorate the piano as well. And so we were here on Thursday. I was in the office working on something. Scott, our business manager, was in the office working on something. And Shelly, one of our volunteers who comes in during the week and helps us out in the office, she was working on something. Derek was in here uh, putting some Christmas lights on the piano. He's like, all right, guys, I'm done. I want you to come look at it. And so we came in and we looked at it. And it was some kind of butterfly design. I'm not really sure what all was going on. And he said, well, what do you think? And Scott and Shelly turned and left the auditorium without saying a word like a bunch of cowards. They went back into the office just leaving me to tell Derek that ain't going to work. And so looking at the piano, I said, Derek, let me tell you a little story. A couple years ago, I thought it would be a great idea to do a sermon series around Christmas called The Chaos of Christmas. And this was a series that was designed to talk about how we can miss the meaning of Christmas around the time of Christmas and around the holidays because we're so stressed out. And all of all the joy that we should experience at Christmas time can be lost because we're busy on other projects, and it can steal our joy, and it can take all of our focus away. And I just really wanted to t- get home the the chaotic idea of Christmas. And so I, I met with Sean, who was our business manager at the time, and just she's a great decorator, and and talked to her about the idea. And she's like, "I love the concept." And so what we decided we would do is through our decorations, we would tell a story of chaos. Because it was called the chaos of Christmas. And all this would culminate on Christmas Eve where everything would be Would just be decorated beautifully and be put together. But each week, working up to Christmas Eve, would be a stage in that process. And so things would be a little, they'd be utterly chaotic to begin with. And then you'd start to see it come together. And so we did this week one, and nobody understood what we were doing. And everybody's like, well, your decorations look terrible this year. Why wouldn't you finish them before Sunday? And so we're like, you know what we're going to do? In week two of the sermon, I'm going to explicitly state what we're doing. Like, we would have thought the chaos of Christmas would get that point behind, but okay, it was missed. Maybe it's too artistic. That's on us. I'll mention what we're doing in the sermon, and everybody will understand. So that's what I did in week two. I made very clear what we were going to do with the cast of Christmas, why it looked the way that it looked. After the service, people were like, yeah, we don't like it. I don't, I, I don't understand what you're doing. It looks like crap. We don't get what you're doing. Why? Why you got to make it look like that? And so it was just, it was a disaster. It was a complete disaster. And the worst part is, because we intentionally made it look bad, it took Sean even more time to make it look bad and to add to it than if she would have just decorated it beautiful to begin with to start. So all that to say, I told Derek a little chaos of Christmas as we looked at that, and he's like, fine, fine, I'm just going to start over. And he ripped the lights off the piano, and he started all over. Now, have you ever been in that spot? Maybe you've been building something, and in your mind and in the blueprints, it was going to turn out a certain way, and you start putting it together, and all of a sudden, you very quickly realize that what you, the idea you had in your mind is not at all the reality that's staring back at you right now. And rather than try to salvage it, here's like, forget it. I'm just starting over. Maybe you've been that way with a project or a paper in school, and you've got a concept and you've got an idea and you start to write it out, and then a little while into the project you realize that the writer's block that you can't get past isn't because you're, you're just out of ideas, it's because you hate what you've begun. And so rather than try to salvage it, you're just like, I'm just going to start over from scratch. Maybe you've encountered this in the kitchen. You were, you were baking a dessert or a dish, and you had this idea of this is how it's going to turn out, and it's going to be delicious, and it's going to be fantastic, and it's going to look beautiful. And you pull it out of the oven, and you're like, we're getting takeout. We're not even going to, mm-mm, we're not doing that tonight. Have you ever been there where you're starting fresh Because things just didn't go like you wanted them to to begin with. Well, that's where God was. And if you're just joining us today, welcome. We've been walking through the the very beginning. We've been walking through the book of Genesis. So if you have your phones or your tablets, I'd invite you to follow along with us this morning in the Bible app. It's a free resource that you can download in the app store of your choosing. Just type in Bible. It's the first one that pops up. And once you've installed that on your device, you can enable the events feature within the Bible app and either enable your locations or type in zip code 54201, and their Lakeside Community Church will pop up, and you can follow along with us there. If you have a traditional Bible, we're in Genesis, which is the very first book in the Bible, and we're going to be in the second half of chapter 9. If you're streaming from home, thank you again for joining us, and the verses will be available on the screens below as we start today in Genesis 9.18 in just a minute. But just to catch you up. What's happened is God created Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they, they sinned, we then saw that that extended to their family, then we saw that it extended to the world. So much so that God chose Noah, who was the only righteous person in the world, and he said, I'm going to spare you and your family and the animals in an ark, but otherwise I'm flooding this thing and we're going to start over. And so Noah and his family have just gotten off the ark. They were on the ark for about a year as, as it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, but then all of the water had to recede. They could finally get off the boat, and what we see when they get off the boat is Noah makes an altar, and he worships God. He thanks God, and then God responds by blessing Noah and his family with the same blessing that he gave Adam and Eve originally to begin with, and that is to live a productive life to go and to create things and design things and enjoy life and to multiply, to procreate and to fill the world. That is the blessing, not the obligation, but the blessing that God gave Noah and his family after they got out of the ark. And we pick up the story in Genesis nine eighteen, where we read these words. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Now, I love that God chose Noah and his family to to reset everything, because Noah can't even name his kids right. I mean, he names them Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Good luck going through life with those names. If any of you are named Shem, Ham, and Japheth, don't mean to offend you, sorry. Uh, But really, not exactly the the best names here. Noah and his sons, though, what we see are they're fulfilling what God has called them to do. They're fulfilling what God has called them to do. Again, God blessed them to start chapter 9. He said, go be fruitful and multiply. And that's what we see Noah's sons doing here as they are now outside of the ark. And then the story continues. Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. So Noah's out of the boat, and he's like, yeah, I'm going to leave the shipbuilding behind, and I'm going to start a new career-, career. And Noah goes, and he becomes a winemaker. Now, we see this today. Every celebrity in the world has their own label of wine or whiskey or vodka or tequila. Every celebrity in the world has their own label. Same thing's going on here with Noah. It's nothing new. He's left the shipbuilding behind. He's embarking on a new career. He's out of the boat, and he said, I'm going to be a winemaker. So he plants a vineyard. Then verse 21, Noah drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. So Noah is sampling the product, he's like, mm, it's pretty good, has a little bit of more. So he goes from a glass to a bottle, and now he's drunk, and Noah's drunk, and either he's hot because he's drunk, or because he's drunk, he's getting naked, and that's a phenomenon that if you've ever been to a college party, you understand, but whatever the case may be, whatever the reason is, Noah is drunk, and now he's naked, and he's in his tent. And in the very same chapter, in the very same chapter that starts with God blessing Noah, in the very same chapter, we now see Noah drunk and naked in a tent. And on one hand, this is disheartening, right? Because on one hand, we're like, same chapter, buddy, same chapter, And on the other hand, this should kind of be encouraging for us. Because how many times, for those of us who follow Jesus, have we been right there? Not necessarily drunk and naked in a tent, but how many times have we been right there? Where we love God and we're serving God and we want to follow after God. And that's literally what we want to do. And that is our heartbeat. Our heartbeat is to live for God and to serve God and to accomplish things for God's glory. And that is what we do. And then sometimes days, sometimes not even days, sometimes it's hours. Sometimes it's just moments later. We find ourselves in a situation where we're doing the very things we hate. where we have become everything we know that God doesn't want us to become. We find ourselves in a situation we hope no one finds out about. We find ourselves in a circumstance that doesn't honor God. And sometimes, just moments before, just moments before, We were serving God. And now we've messed up. And the enemy comes. And the enemy is really good at coming to us in those moments and saying, Hey, hypocrite, this is who you really are. That other stuff, that doesn't count. This is your true character. This is the real you. Look at you, you failure. Oh, you want to serve God, you want to follow after God, but look at you now. Society doesn't have much different of a message. And what we see throughout Scripture is that God uses broken and flawed people Accomplish incredible things for him. In fact, as we look throughout Scripture, one of one of the things that is fascinating to me is the the lengths Scripture goes to to not make all of the people that we read about heroes, but to let us see their flaws, to let us see their imperfections, to let us see that they're people just like you and me who God, for whatever reason, chooses to do some incredible things to really ordinary people, and then just sometimes, verses later, in the same chapter. we see, they mess up. We see they're prone to mistakes. That's the story of Noah. Here he is in the chapter that starts with God blessing him can't even make it through the whole chapter getting it right. And now he's in his tent, drunk and naked. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, we might think to ourselves, okay, that's not ideal. Never really want your kids to see you naked. That's awkward for everybody involved, awkward for the parents, awkward for the kids. It's just awkward for everyone. Now, not ideal, but, I mean, really, is that that big of a deal? It's Nobody wakes up and's like, hey, you know, today, yeah, it's on the list of things to do. But at the end of it, I mean, really, is this this big of an event? And the answer is yes. As we're going to see, this is a really big event event now remember scripture wasn't originally written in english and so all the translations that we have are great translations but but sometimes when you translate things into another language you you lose some of the nuance and you lose things and so when it when we're told here in genesis 9 that ham the father of canaan saw the nakedness of noah this idea of saw the nakedness indicates more than just a factual occurrence it's more than than ham just walking in the tent and being like oh yep there's dad naked and turning out and turning around and walking out of the tent and we aren't really sure what but but there's a couple possibilities here either there's glee with him that that he saw noah in the condition that he did so he sees noah drunk and naked and passed out and there's glee in his heart because there's noah There's the guy that God used to do all these incredible things, and look at him now. Look at him now, drunk and passed out in a tent. Oh, look at you, hero of the faith, all drunk. Yeah, how's that working out for you? So there's almost a glee in seeing somebody else fall. There's a glee in seeing somebody else make a mistake. There's a glee in the condition that he's in. That's one possibility, that he sees his father who's been humiliated, or the other possibility is there's some kind of lustful desire going on there. And the reality is we don't know, and God doesn't want us to know. God does want us to know that Noah got drunk and he's in the tent. God wants us to know that. God wants us to know that Ham saw what was going on. But whatever specifics happened in the tent, God's like, that's really none of your business. And I know for those of you who are true crime podcast fans right now, you're going crazy. Because you're like, I need to know exactly what happened in that tent. But the reality is God doesn't want us to know. Because he told us a lot of details about this story, but he didn't tell us that detail. But here's what we do know. That Ham sees Noah in this condition, and he runs out, and he tells his brothers. Whatever transpired in that tent, we do not know, but what we do know is Ham runs out, and he tells his brothers. And sometimes, because of proximity, sometimes because of relationship, sometimes just because of the way the world works, you're going to have intimate knowledge of the situations and the sins of others. And the question is, what do you do with that information? Sometimes because of proximity, sometimes because of a relationship, sometimes just, just because it's the way it works, you are going to have intimate knowledge of the situations and the sins of others. And the question that we have to wrestle with is, what do we do with that information? In a day and an age in which we live, where, where people are, are quick to put everything on blast and, and people are just hungry for clicks, there are entire websites that are, that are devoted to this, to sharing the gossip of, of everybody's sin and, and making it a point to highlight that. What do we do when we have information, when we have intimate knowledge of someone's situation and their sin? What do we do with that information? And the question that we have to ask is, do we run and tell it to others? Are we the first people to run out of the tent and be like, hey, guess what about Noah? Hey, did you know this about Noah? Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. And here's the contrast. Here's the contrast. We see Ham, he takes delight in what he sees. Shem and Japheth, they discreetly cover their father. Ham sees Noah in his condition, runs out, and tells his brothers, Shem and Japheth, they pick up a blanket. They back into the tent. And they walk backwards. And they cover Noah. And this is the question that we have to wrestle with. Is do we respond when we have intimate knowledge of situations and sins like Ham, or do we respond like Shem and Japheth? And I know the tension that you might be wrestling with right now is, the question is, is it right to cover up sin? Is it right to cover up sin? And I would contend that sometimes not only is it right, but I would contend sometimes it's required. And you're like, what? Well, 1 Peter 4.8 tells us this. Keep loving each other dearly. Because love covers a multitude of sin. Now, let me be very clear. Is it always right to cover up sin? The answer is no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. If there are victims in danger... There are people who can't advocate for themselves. If there are people who are victimized and, and don't even know it, the last thing scripture would require of any of us to do would be to cover that up or to stay silent on it. We have a biblical obligation to raise those concerns. And this is where it becomes essential that we understand what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 18. See, Jesus has given us instructions and directions on how to handle all these events. And Matthew 18 is a course in what to do when we have been sinned against. It's a course in what to do when we become aware of the situation and the sins of others. And the first step that Jesus instructed was when you have been sinned against is for you to go to the person. One on one. Not to go to a blog, not to go to social media, not to go to none of that, but for you to go to the person one-on-one and confront them with the sin. Now, are there situations where that's not plausible? There are some. Fewer than, than not, but there are definitely some situations where you should not go one-on-one to the person for, for a reason of safety, for, for a number of other reasons that could come into play. But Jesus gave us a step two. And a step two is if you can't go to the person one-on-one, or if you go to the person one-on-one, and they do not respond, they do not listen, is for you to take a witness, if there's a witness to the event, If there's not a witness, then you go tell your side of the story to someone who is mature, someone who can keep their mouth shut, someone who realizes the Proverbs tell us one side of the argument sounds great until you hear the other side who can keep an open mind if they didn't actually witness it, if they didn't actually see it. You take that person along with you to the person who has sinned against you, and you confront them that way. And if that doesn't work, then you get the leadership of the church involved. Now, I want to be crystal clear because of the day and age in which we live, because of all the things that you see on the press right now. There there are times you go straight to the authorities. If you've ever been victimized in terms of, of sexual sin or anything, abuse, anything along those lines, I'm not advocating at all that you don't go to the authorities. So please hear me very clearly. I'm not saying don't go to the authorities. But I'm saying how it needs to be dealt with interpersonally needs to function this way. And the problem is, somewhere along the line, instead of this idea of picking up the blanket and walking backwards, this idea of knowing someone's situation and knowing their sin. The response of Ham is more common than the responses of Shem and Japheth. And rather than see people at their most vulnerable, rather than see people when they are most in need of mercy and grace and covering them, we have somehow become quick to airing out all of the dirty laundry and letting that be known. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. So Noah sobers up, and he knows what Ham has done. Now again, Resist the temptation, because your mind's going to be going in a million different places. Well, how did he know when he woke up what had happened? And again, God doesn't tell us that. God doesn't tell us that, so we don't get to know. But what we do know is that Noah is absolutely irate. Noah is absolutely irate in the condition that he finds himself in, and he curses Ham's son Canaan. You might be like, well, that's a little extreme, So your son does you dirty and then you curse your grandson? How is that fair? Why would he do that? And here's a couple implications that we need to keep in mind. First is this. A father's actions always have consequences for their children. A father's actions always have consequences for their children. So dads, I just want to remind you today, your actions will always have consequences for your family. They always have consequences for your family. Second, Ham sinned as a son. And so since Ham sinned as a son, and by by principle he was punished as a son. And third, Canaan took on the nature of Ham. We see throughout Genesis and the rest of the Old Testament just the pure evil of the Canaanites. It's on full display throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Noah also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth. And let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So Noah goes back to God, realizing his greatness here. What we see here in the start of verse 26 is Noah repents. He's just cursed his grandson, and Noah repents for the condition that he was in. It wasn't a sin for Noah to plant a vineyard. It wasn't a sin for Noah to make wine. It wasn't a sin for Noah to drink wine. The sin came in when drunkenness entered the equation. And here we see repentance, that Noah acknowledges the greatness of God, and he repents. And we also see the difference here between the blessing and the curses, that here he blesses his son Shem, and he blesses his son Japheth. And after the flood, Noah lived 350 years, all the days of Noah, Were 950 years and he died. Did you catch that? After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. And here's my question What do we know about Noah after the flood? Well, that he planted a vineyard, that he drank wine, that he got drunk, that he was naked in his tent, something went down with his son, that he cursed his grandson, and he died. 350 years. You realize, 950 years the life of Noah? And what do we know about Noah? We know a few years. Out of 950 years of his life, we know a handful of years of his life, of what happened. And some of you right now are living discouraged lives. Because you're walking through life and you're waiting for this moment of greatness. And it hasn't happened yet. And you you think to yourself, well, my life doesn't amount to anything because I'm not a celebrity. I don't have a huge following. I'm not a worldwide name. And our society and our culture just tells you all of these things are valuable. All of these things what matter. And you've got to you've got to be a celebrity to matter. You've got to be a big deal. You've got to accomplish all these things. And some of you are walking through life absolutely defeated right now because you don't have any great accomplishments to your name, and you think somehow your life's some sort of enormous failure, not only to yourself, but to God, because God's never done anything incredible like build an ark and flood the world through you and your life, and you just wonder, God, are you? Even, does my life even matter? Does my life even have purpose? And I want to remind you, Noah lived for 950 years, and out of those 950 years, we know about a handful of them. A handful. And not only that, but what do we know? Like, I would love for the story. I would love for the story of Noah to end, and the waters receded, and he got off the ark, and he bought some oceanfront property. Or really, considering what he'd just been through, probably bought some land in the desert, all right? Like, bought some land in the desert to never see water again, and lived out his days. I would love for that to be the end of the story of Noah. Noah. but it's not. You know what's fascinating? That the same God who called Noah to build the ark and to spare him and his family and the animals when he flooded the world is the God who knows everything. Which means before God called Noah to build the ark, he knew that post the ark, In the same chapter where God blesses him in Genesis chapter 9, the same chapter, Noah would plant a vineyard, he'd get drunk, he'd be in the tent, something shady would go on with his son. Some of you are paralyzed because of a mistake in your past. Some of you can't move beyond a choice that you made that you regret. And it's not just you. You you think, well, God can't use me because of this. And I'm just here to tell you, God factored in all of your stupidity before he called you to do anything. God knows about the dumb things you're going to do tomorrow and next week and next month and next year that you don't even know about yet. God knows all about them, and he factored those in before he called you, and God still loves you. And he can still use you, whether mistakes in the past or whether you're yet to make. Does that mean that God doesn't care and God wants you to make mistakes? No. But God uses broken and flawed people to accomplish His purposes. And He knows about every dumb thing you've done and about every dumb thing you're going to do. And He still loves you. And He still wants to use you. I want to talk to some of you who are discouraged today because you you can't do what you used to do, and you used to have so much energy, you used to have so much ability, and and you're on, you know, you're on the back nine. I mean, truth be told, you might be on hole 17 or 18. We don't know. I mean, right? Any of us could go at any point in time. We don't know, but Playing the percentages here, you've got a lot fewer days ahead of you than you do behind you, and you're discouraged because you look at what you used to be able to do, and you're like, I can't do that anymore, and I just want to remind you, the story of Noah wasn't over as soon as he walked off the boat. For 350 more years, Noah lived. You might not be able to do everything you once were able to do, but I just want to remind you, if you're not dead, you're not done, and God still has a purpose in your life, and it may not be that you can accomplish what you used to be able to accomplish, but God still has a plan, and God still has a purpose, and God still wants to use you today. It might look different, but if you're not dead, you're not done. And there's still a point for you being here. And lastly, I just want to ask the question. When you know the situation, when you know the sin, do you take glee in watching somebody else fall? Does it make you feel better about yourself to see somebody else stumble? Or do you pick up the blanket and walk backwards and realize that in the worst of our moments, in the midst of regret, in the secrets we hope no one else finds out, We need grace, we need mercy, and we need love. Are we gonna be people who celebrate the fall of others? Are we gonna see people at their most vulnerable and love them there? That's the question that we have to answer. God, I pray that we would be people who love and follow you. I pray for the person who's struggling because they feel like their life doesn't matter because they've never accomplished anything grand. And I, I pray, God, that they wouldn't listen to the noise. I, I pray they wouldn't listen to those lies. I pray for the person who's discouraged because they can't do what they used to be able to do, and I pray that you would help them see that you still have purposes and plans for their life. We pray, God, that we wouldn't be people who take delight in seeing other people fall. That we wouldn't take delight in seeing other people stumble. That we would be quick to offer mercy and grace. That we would love people and we would be reminded of our own need for redemption. We thank you, God, for that redemption which is offered to us through your son, Jesus, and a sacrifice that covered all of our sin once and for all. God, we thank you for using broken people for your glory, that when we mess up, you don't discard us, you don't quit on us, pray that we would rest in that redemption. I pray that we would embrace that mercy. and I pray that we would celebrate that grace, which is offered us through your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we do pray. Amen.